Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 30th, 2021. We're going to open today's episode by marking a long-anticipated milestone for the FDA. The agency on July 28th announced the approval of the first interchangeable biosimilar product. The winner was Viatris' Semgly, an insulin glar gene that references Sanofi's Lantus. Interchangeability status means that it can be automatically substituted at the pharmacy without direction from a physician, which, as our colleague Sue Sutter wrote in the story, is considered the holy grail for driving biosimilar uptake. The product is expected to be launched by the end of this year. So I know for a lot of FDA watchers, including us, who are waiting for waiting to see not only who would get the first interchangeable designation, but how it would work, uh, you know, for what was there anything that or what really stuck out for you all, you know, on the panel here on the with the uh, assembly approval? So the thing that I thought was most interesting in Sue's story was like the way the label changes to sort of a race in a sense. You know, some of the studies and work they had yeah. done when it was its own sort of marketed kind of as its standalone product and that they're going to lose this. Um, the data that kind of shows when you switch back and forth. Cause like, that seems like, I mean, I know nobody besides us really reads the label. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it doesn't matter, but um, it just seems interesting. Cause you'd think like, that's like something people would care about and want to kind of know and have that confidence. And perhaps that's just sort of implied with the interchangeable standard, right? That that's, that's sort of what yeah, FDA has, um, granted it when, you know, sort of said just in the name interchangeable, but I, I just sort of found some of that kind of interesting because I don't know if like, again, for the people that pay attention to that stuff or want to sort of read it in more detail or see that assurance if that's helpful at all. Yeah, I, I read that as Matt likes to call the, generis, the genericization of, of the product because generic small molecule generic labels are exactly the same as the brand. So if you want them to be, you know, considered interchangeable, they, the labels have to be either, you know, have to be close. Yeah, FDA had uh, signaled this was sort of what they were going to do uh, in the guidance leading up to this. Uh, um, but I thought it was uh, still very interesting that the uh, agency, agency chose not to have an advisory committee. Um, you know, they had a bunch of advisory committees for the first biosimilars. Um, you know, we thought maybe too many given for kind of how uh, um, repetitive and sort of perhaps uninformative they uh, um, they were. Um, and obviously sort of kind of the, the remote uh, um, uh, nature of the advisory committees may sort of complicate things uh, um, right now. But uh, for such a, uh, a regulatory milestone, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, um, you know, sort of, uh, public discussion, even those were kind of FDA had, uh, you know, very clearly in their uh, guidance told us what they were, uh, what they were going to do. And maybe they thought that was adequate because they, uh, they, did, they did exactly what they, uh, what they had sort of laid out they, they were going to do. You know, I thought, um, Matt, that um, it could be because insulin is a very simple, you know, molecule, relatively speaking, that this was an easier uh, decision. Um, you know, maybe there'll be more consultation for the Humira biosimilars um, coming up. Um, I guess we'll see, but. 
Yeah, as he's written, Kathy's sort of kind of humor is sort of maybe the uh, um, the yeah. bigger uh, the bigger test of sort of kind of the uh, the viability of this pathway as a uh, as a meaningful way to uh, to market just because of the uh, the the dynamics of that uh, um, you know that mm -hmm. particular uh, category. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the assembly also had kind of a an, an I don't know if odd is the right word kind of regulatory history a little bit for those of us who you know find this stuff interesting. I mean, it was it was originally approved as a, uh, a uh, I believe it was a it, it was approved as a, as an NDA and then it transitioned to a BLA like immediately because of the timing of it. Through to um, to become a, to become a, a bio to be regulated as a biologic, and and which allowed them to be able to seek the interchangeable uh, designation, which is just you know that's the, the the transition process was weird to begin with, but then you had the, this application that was under review, and then as soon as it was approved, it because of the the dates it transitioned and then. Became a immediately became a biologic. It's just very, you know, that that in itself is just very is very odd. Yeah, it was uh, um, the uh, subject of uh, what seems like a uh, um, uh, piece of legislation just for one product because it, it, it alone <laughs> seemed to be the uh, um, the the pending uh, um, uh, NDA of uh, um, you know the, the categories of uh, um, you know from more complex. Uh, um, Drugs at the at the time that were kind of uh, supposed to be deemed uh, and rolled over to uh, to BLAs as part of the uh, um, the uh, the legislation that set up uh, um, the the biosimilar pathway and that uh, those were kind of happening a um, uh, uh, little before they were actually going to be able to get approved. So sort of there was a uh, um, an exception made in uh, um, a subsequent piece of legislation that allowed it to sort of kind of to uh, um, uh, not have to resubmit as a uh, as a BLA, but simply get approved as an NDA and then uh, immediately be approved as a BLA. So it was a uh, not only does this kind of have uh, um, had this milestone as the uh, interchangeable, but it has that milestone as the uh, um, probably the product that now carries the the most different designations from FDA NDA BLA <laughs> now uh, interchangeable. So uh, um, yeah, and of course it, the product is going to keep testing, you know, becoming like a test case for the FDA because it. It got the exclusivity award, where we think for first that goes to first interchangeable designated products that are approved. The problem is it wasn't entirely clear how that works. Um, the The FDA is supposedly working on guidance on this because they weren't entirely they were trying to explain to everybody how it's supposed to work. But then they go in in the approval letter, they kind of just said, well, you could get a year of exclusivity, but then there was like four other paragraphs with four other things that kind of said the all these other things could happen too, and that could affect it. So they were kind of they they didn't really say they said they're eligible for exclusivity for, but didn't really say how long. And then, but Viatris, I guess, said that they think they get a year, but it's gonna it doesn't start until they launch the product, but. We we don't really know kind of yet how this is going to work. Yeah, the uh, um, uh, you know I think uh, uh, both uh, Congress and uh, FDA were hoping that the uh, 
exclusivity provisions for uh, um, interchangeable biosimilars would be uh, much more simple than the uh, the ones for uh, for ANDAs. And uh, you know, I, I I certainly hope they they uh, they are. Maybe I don't hope they are. Maybe you know, the, the more complex, the more stories for for us, and that's always good. But uh, um, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have sort of played out as for kind of completely straightforward, which, uh, you know, again, sort kind of a congressional intent is often a, a, a tricky thing to, uh, um, I mean, it's, you know, congressional intent is, is, is you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real thing, but sort of, kind of the, 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 you can't sort of anticipate every scenario. And sort of, kind of it's not just sort of, kind of a simple uh, one-year stamp they can put on the, uh, the, uh, the product and uh, off it goes. Yeah. And, and to, to, yeah, I, I think in thinking about it, I think some of the issue has to do with the fact that insulin doesn't have a lot of the complicating factors that a lot of these other biologics will have, like say Humira that had, that has like a list a mile long of, of patents that are still running and would have to be adjudicated. Insulin's been around for a hundred years. So, you know, that they didn't have to go through a lot of that kind of, a lot of those kinds of issues. And I think some of it has to do with how the patents are adjudicated and, and, and those, that type of language. So, it, in being simple, it might have be, may have been become more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, big milestone for the FDA. So we'll be, of course, watching for you know who comes next if if they're you know and uh, and of course how assembly does assembly does once it uh, it actually gets on the market as an interchangeable and whether pharmacists are actually exchanging it or um, uh, giving uh, giving it to patients yeah. substituting yeah, yeah. Uh, the patients and so forth. It'll be interesting to see, of course, like um, whether the pricing changes or at least the pricing for patients, you know, does does it change their out-of-pocket costs in any way um, or get any beneficial formulary placement or so forth or if they still have trouble there? Because obviously the end, the end goal of all of this is to bring, you know, more affordable versions of these products to patients. So um, I think that's really the next step to watch is um, sort of the non-FDA side of this is, does this end up, you know, fulfilling that promise? Yeah, Sarah, I've heard that rebating will probably be a factor in uptake for this as well. So we'll see. Yeah, hopefully they can, uh, you know, kind of break through some of these these pricing log jams. At least that's what the government's hoping with with all this. Yeah. Next up is the latest on the controversial Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm. Kathy, you listened to a stakeholder call that CMS conducted to solicit opinions on coverage issues for these types of drugs. So did we learn anything new? Yeah, I thought I thought uh, there were some interesting comments. Um, so I did a story uh, based on uh, comments by the president of the Alliance for Aging Research. That's a patient advocacy group. And she offered suggestions for how CMS could fashion a Medicare coverage policy for Alzheimer's drugs that includes an evidence development requirement, which you know many stakeholders seem to be assuming that's what CMS is gonna do. Um, her suggestions were based on past experiences with CED, though not in the drug area, because this these have been very rare in the drug area. Um, she referred to an ongoing coverage with evidence development requirement, or CED, for transcatheter aortic valve replacement surgery that requires patient registries. And um, so one of her primary recommendations was that the, the requirement be time limited. Um, she noted that the valve replacement registries started in 2012 and are still going on. <laughs> 
And, you know, the general concern is that CED presents sort of an, another bureaucratic layer or an obstacle to coverage. So they really shouldn't be, or it really shouldn't be required longer than needed. Um, she also pointed out there's been a lot of consternation about the length of time, nine years, that Biogen and Issei have to conduct their phase four study on Adjahelm and, you know, sort of noted that CED can be just as bad in terms of, of time. Um, she also suggested that if required, registries should be set up to answer only the questions that CMS is interested in. Apparently what's happened in some cases is that the academics and the researchers who are sort of the stewards of the registries, you know, are, are sort of asking their own questions. And, you know, this is another way of sort of extending this process or delaying it. Um, and then finally, you know, she said that the the charges for you know, for operating the registries by the stewards should be transparent and should be set at a level that's, you know, only slightly above cost. Because what happens otherwise is that the only organizations that sort of can afford to do these are large academic medical centers, and that has its own way of limiting access. Um, I, I also wanted to mention just finally that, you know, CMS had two of these stakeholder calls and they currently have a comment period, for, you know, for written comments on this issue. Um, there's going to be another comment period after the draft decision on coverage comes out in January. And um, this is important because CMS, I think, really needs advice. Um, at a recent meeting, Mark McClellan, who is a former CMS administrator and also a well-known policy expert, pointed out that the number of people currently working at the CMS coverage division um, with advanced expertise in coverage policy is about half what it was when he was administrator, which was in like 04 to 06. So it does seem like CMS is going to need support in this. Um, which I thought was pretty interesting. Okay, really dumb question, and uh -huh. I probably should know the answer to this, but uh -huh. what is the what is the registry supposed to do? Is that supposed to generate the evidence for them to decide, you know, on yeah. the coverage? Okay, right. So it would, you know, it would track sort of the basics about who the patients are, you know, um, you know when they are treated. And then it also tracks outcomes. And so that that will, you know, be a key thing for CMS. And that's pretty typical, I think, with these registries. So what are we thinking about the, is there anything you could tell about the, um, you know, how CMS is thinking about, you know, the coverage determination at this point for, you know, for Agihome or no? Yeah, not really. I mean, they they were in listening mode <laughs> during these calls, so they, they really didn't comment on what they were hearing. Um, and, you know, they, as is, I think, typical, you know, they're really not going to tip their hand to sort of the direction that they're going. But, you know, there has been a lot of speculation about what they're going to do. And that's where this idea about, you know, how CMS will, you know, will issue a national policy, A, um, they will cover these drugs, um, but they're likely to have this requirement for evidence development. Um, and then the other the other thing that's, you know, I've heard several times is that the the requirement is not likely to involve clinical trials. 
that it's they're going to re require something like registry, something like observational data, as opposed to requiring an additional clinical trial when, you know, the sponsors in this case are already committed to conducting one, you know, under the approval um, for Agihelm. That's interesting, Kathy, that sort of that, uh, um, you know, given that the um, the data, you, you know, probably won't be in from the uh, the clinical trial, um, but uh, um, CMS will sort of still be uh, satisfied with their additional data, but uh, they don't think that they have to wait for the FDA data, but they're also not satisfied with just simply the the data that FDA relied on to approve it in the first place. So it's sort of yeah. kind of, sort of, kind of finding themselves as sort of in a uh, uncomfortable middle yeah. ground there, I guess, where they, they, they want more, but they want, they're not going to um, yeah. uh, require as much as perhaps some of the critics think they uh, they should have. Yeah, well, it's true. Um, another interesting thing that Mark McClellan said at this recent meeting, it was actually an ICER meeting on Adjahelm, is that, you know, don't forget that, that there will be more clinical data coming out in this class from the other uh, drugs that are in, in development at this point, like the Lilly drug, and, you know, that there's um, Roche, I think, has one, and I think Esai has another one. Um, so his point was there will be more clinical data coming out, um, and likely during the, this period when CMS is conducting this this analysis, so that could be helpful. That's very that's very interesting. This is a you know again I, I keep calling this the, the gift that keeps on giving. I mean it just doesn't seem to want to you know it yeah. it doesn't let up yeah. <laughs> as, as we go on. So yeah. and, and may it's probably because we're we're all paying because this drug could potentially get to a lot of a lot more people than we're used to seeing. I, I think there's a lot a lot more attention being paid to every step of the process now. Yeah, you know, and I think that CMS has needed to sort of up, update their coverage policies for a long time. And, you know, this is sort of maybe forcing something in the drug area that they should have been doing anyway. Um, so I think it is a very interesting process to be watching. I guess that's my sort of main question is, I mean, it seems like they're really, CMS doesn't, I mean, even throughout this process, like technically they're not allowed to consider price. Mm -hmm. um, right. But like sort of the underlying assumption here is that they probably wouldn't be quite as concerned, yeah. right, if the price was yeah. lower. And does Congress or does anybody sort of think about, well, sh should we in instead of sort of, again, dealing with these complicated registries and sort of having to reassess a drug post market in addition to what FDA is already requiring, like if we could get a sort of discounted price while benefit mm -hmm. is pending, you know, would yeah. that make it easier to handle yeah. in the long run? Yeah, well, it's true. I think, um, as you said, although CMS is not supposed to cover price in their coverage decisions, um, I think the fact that this could be such a huge cost burden to the program had to catch their attention. <laughs> um, but I think they're also, I mean, it's also possible that they could cut some deals with the manufacturers. You know, Biogen in a, a statement a while back mentioned volume-based discounts. You know, there's all, also this talk about, you know, value-based um, contracts, which CMS really hasn't done in the past, but, you know, that's that's possible in this case too. So yeah, that's that's sort of a whole other avenue that that we'll be watching. Yeah, it's very interesting this yeah, you know, this this going forward it um you know, we'll all be well I'm sure that a lot of people will be watching it as we go. Finally today we're going to take a look at 
COVID-19 vaccine development. Sarah, the FDA asked sponsors of the mRNA vaccines to expand their trials in children, but it's not that simple, is it? Well, so um, I guess what happened um, early this week is um, the New York Times um, first reported that Moderna and Pfizer were going to need to have at least 3,000 people ages 5 to 11 in their um, studies for that age range, which the studies um, in general, the way they're conducting those studies, that's a cohort, right? Um, so the studies actually include broader pediatric populations and previous guidance, or it's not officially guidance. Um, FDA had sort of outlined their expectations for pediatric EUAs ahead of an advisory committee meeting. And that seemed to suggest they were thinking more along the lines of like a thousand. So a tripling of that. Um, and the while well, FDA is not officially commenting on this, um, kind of citing privileged, you know, sponsor, FDA interaction. Um, the assumption here from what we know, um, largely from Moderna, Pfizer's been a little more um, closed mouth, although it has acknowledged they have been asked to make some tweaks um, now. Um, the assumption is this is largely about, um, you know, being able to better characterize or assess the risk of myocarditis, um, these heart inflammation events that we've seen occur um post EUA in older teens, young adults, and throughout the population, but certainly it's been um higher rates in um, you know, particularly in males, um, young teen teenagers, older teenagers, and then these young adults. Um I mean, the big question I sort of raised in my story and some people I talked to raised is um the 3,000 sample size struck me as an interesting number because essentially, um, I think as Paul Offit told me, the um, the data seems to point to in younger, you know, adults, the risk is maybe one in 20,000 or so at sort of worse. So if, if it's not significantly more common in young people, you're not really going to pick anything up with a 3,000 person sample, right? So the question kind of becomes like, are they concerned it actually is that much more common? And I think if that were the case, that could really, um, you know, spark a lot of um, more controversy and debate as to whether these products should be given um, an EUA um, in particular in this population because you know you have to balance the risks of covid or the risks of you know severe covid or long-term complications and death and so forth with the risks of these heart events which um you know like everything in medicine and science right now it's still um and with something new it's still not quite clear kind of the long-term effects of these events in people who get mrna vaccines some people seem to think you know it's fairly mild, it resolves. Other people say, you know, we really need to know longer term what's going on with the heart um, scarring and so forth. So um, I think we had kind of already known since the myocarditis carditis events came up that this was going to be a pretty complicated um, issue when it came to clearing these vaccines for younger patients. But this is the first signal we have that FDA is really um, you know, trying to make sure, I guess, they get the best data possible um, pre any potential EUA.
And the other thing I just want to highlight is both Pfizer and Moderna this week when they've talked about kind of the timing of their submissions of the EUA in this population, which Pfizer still seems to think they can submit around the same time, which is in September. Moderna seems to indicate this will probably push their timing back a bit. But they both kind of say like, you know, we'll this is when we'll be able to submit an EUA if that's sort of deemed like appropriate or necessary in this population. I'm, I think I'm botching their wording a little bit, but just there was a sense to me from their wording that they're not really sure whether, you know, FDA is going to really want to pursue the EUA pathway here or is going to want to make them go through the um, more rigorous BLA process. That, that's, that, that's really interesting in in itself because i i know that that's been a that's been an, an, an issue that that has come up is that you know the 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 BLAs are already pending for adults and what do you do if you you know there do you grant EUAs for younger for the younger uh, populations as they keep as they keep working on them do you make them file supplements? How, to, how does that work? How is that going to work from a timing perspective and so forth? Yeah, I think that um, I've heard Peter Marks talk about this a little bit. I don't, I mean, I, I think they appreciate that this may present a little bit of confusion um, if, you know, you have a, an, uh, an EUA for certain populations and the full approval for another population. But I think the really big debate here for younger adolescents or younger children is just that um, part of the reason you would grant an EUA is um, when you're th is because when you're thinking about the risk benefit calculus, you know, um, the the risk to children regarding COVID versus the any risk from the vaccine is, you know, reaches a certain threshold. Um, and the question, I guess, has been you know, is COVID the same emergency for younger kids that it is for older teens and adults? And certainly at FDA's advisory committee, advisors had, you know, different opinions about that. Um, you know, the Delta variant may change this. And again, I think there's, I've seen people with pretty different opinions as to whether the Delta variant is more harmful to, to kids, obviously more kids are getting, are likely to get it because it's more infectious, but that doesn't necessarily mean their course of disease has changed. Um, so I think that's really the big thing to think about is like, does FDA draw a line on sort of on how serious of an emergency COVID is for younger people? Yeah, I certainly do not uh, envy the agency's uh, decision-making there. There's kind of, I, uh, I can't imagine the political firestorm if they, uh, somehow decided that uh, um, you know, the um, the vaccine wasn't sufficiently safe for uh, uh, younger kids or uh, you know something like uh, something like that uh, um, uh, you know sort of the uh, the blowback and through kind of the consequences for adult immunization might be uh, pretty significant one thing I haven't heard talked about too much is and somebody maybe has seen more information on this is, but I think there were some suggestions at the advisory committee that maybe um, to reduce sort of the risk of these heart events, at least perhaps lower dosing in certain age groups could be explored or um, a different, you know, timeline between the first and second doses. So that would, that'll also be interesting to me, I think, if any of these companies bring forth that approach and see if that has any um, Difference, um, 
so that'll be interesting to see as well. I, I don't know. I mean, the other thing to think about here is just the the fact that you're mentioning in a, an adverse event, myocarditis. I mean, is that going to scare parents into not letting their kids get, you know, get the shot, even even if this is shown to be not an issue? Sorry, you're saying even if the myocarditis isn't shown to be not an issue? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, it wouldn't that, I mean, is that going to scare parents? I mean, it, I, I'm already, you know, thinking about it and I, I have a, you know, I have a 40 year old, so. I mean, it, it's certainly possible, um, you know, a certain number of young people with these events end up hospitalized. Again, some people are saying, well, they're just, they're hospitalized for a few days, they're fine. But, you know, again, you sort of have to counter that with how many children get hospitalized from COVID, which, what are the long-term ramifications of either event? So it's, I mean, it's certainly going to be, would become much, much more challenging, I think, communication effort on the part of the FDA, other public health agencies, doctors to kind of walk through this with kids. And it may be a, I don't know, like I'm just thinking now too, we're talking a lot about vaccine mandates, but maybe in this population that would be considered differently if there's this different benefit risk calculus for younger children. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, the communications problem here is it's already being well-documented that this is like the communications you know, problem of the century, probably. <laughs> just I mean, and it's no. I don't think it's anybody's fault necessarily. It's just that I mean, it, it the as I've heard it described. I mean, these are complex, super complex scientific, you know, issues that we're trying to like basically dial down into like one or two sound bites. And it's not surprising that people are getting confused or you know frustrated or they misunderstand things. And it, it's. I, there, there's going to be books written about how the, how this was just communicated to people and and how and what we can learn from it. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.